Our Father, we thank you that as we come before you, our prayers go up before the throne as incense, sweet-smelling savor before the God of the universe. And Lord, we, we understand this uh, symbolism from both the beginning of Scripture and the end of Scripture. And we know that you have called upon us to be people of prayer. Not that you do not know the problems of your people because you know all things, but that you have chosen that we participate in the sovereign ruling of the universe and in the accomplishment of your plan and purpose through our prayers and through our obedience. And so, Lord, we do that today. We ask you to be present here this morning, even though we know you are here because you are in the hearts of each of us. But we ask you to be active in our midst today to make your word living and powerful in each of our minds and hearts. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we go forth, we will do so with new encouragement and new energy to serve you. We ask, Lord, that uh, your spirit will be upon every aspect of the service and of the teaching of your word in this building this day. In Christ's name, amen. would like to begin reading today in the 28th chapter of Exodus, 28th chapter of Exodus, beginning at verse 40, Exodus 28, 40. Up to this moment, we have been looking at the uh, attire of the high priest, and now we will be looking at the attire for the, the priests in, in general. So beginning at verse 40. And for Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics. You shall also make sashes for them. And you shall make caps for them, for glory and for beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. And you shall anoint them, and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Then you shall make for them linen breeches to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they enter the tent of meeting or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they do not incur, incur guilt and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. There are a lot of passages of scripture that you may read in the Old Testament that sound a little strange to us as we read them in the world, I mean, with the milieu of thought that pervades in the world today, even in the Christian community. But I think as we understand the meaning behind the words, then we can totally agree with the importance of what is proclaimed. Aaron's sons were to, be, were to function as priests. And in order to do so, they had to be attired in a special way. And so they were given garments, as we read this morning here, which would be different from that of Aaron as the high priest, in the sense that they would not be given the uh, blue tunic over which was placed the ephod, and they would not wear the breast piece, of course, with the, the gem stones on it, and they would not wear the golden plate over their forehead on their mitre, their, their bonnet, or whatever you want to call it, uh, on their head, the turban. But otherwise, they were dressed the same, and, and the cloth was colored the same. The uh, blue, the purple, the red, the gold interweaved with the linen in the, the basic tunic that uh, was worn. 
As mentioned earlier, all of the priests were to wear these, these thigh-length linen briefs or shorts, I guess we could say. And mentioned last time and, and read to you a little bit about what Josephus had to say about this. It was still a characteristic of the day in which Josephus lived. And we have to remember that Josephus lived a, a long time after the period we're talking about. He lived in the uh, same century that uh, Christ lived and the first century. And so this, this was still a common practice, and he explains it a little bit in his uh, antiquities. In verse 43 of the passage which we read, it's made very clear that the priests were to wear, wear these undershorts whenever they carried on the official duty as priest in the tabernacle. And if they didn't, now this is really, you know, could be strange to us, they will incur guilt and die. You know. Now, again, that seems like a little bit of a strong statement. But I think in order to understand this, let's, let's go back for a moment uh, to the third chapter of Genesis. Because I think this will give us understanding of where this teaching is coming from, where this command of the Lord is coming from. In the third chapter of Genesis, again, this story we know very well, beginning at verse 6. This is, of course, a part of the temptation that was going on there in the garden. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I think what we understand from that passage was not that in any way the nakedness of Adam and Eve was offensive to God. I mean, that's the way he made them. And, and as long as they were without sin, they were not even aware of that being a problem. That th there was no, uh, you know, no shame involved with it at all. But today, I, I trust all of us would feel ashamed if we were to have to appear publicly in, in such a condition. And that's natural. And it's part of what took place there in the garden. Uh, when sin entered the human race, Adam and Eve became ashamed of their bodily nakedness because they were standing before a perfect and holy God. And they saw in, in their nakedness some way in which they have fallen short of the glory of God. And this shame it was a reflection of their, of their sin, of their guilt, of their inadequacy when in the presence of the Creator. And so I think by extraction we can bring that to what is happening here in terms of dressing the priests properly so that their nakedness is fully covered. Because if they were to go into God's presence glibly, as if it were no big deal, then what they would be doing would be proclaiming that they had no sense of sin, that they had no guilt, that they had no shame that they had a sense of adequacy. They would be proclaiming arrogance and self-sufficiency to just pray it in before God with this being the human condition. 
I mean, it's the natural thing for all people in whatever their environment is, and it varies from one culture to, a to another exactly what all that uh, means, but uh, to have a certain amount of shame relative to the naked body. And for a priest to go in before the Lord with a sense of, hey, it's no big deal, makes no difference, God has to take me the way I am, a, a sense of adequacy in themselves, a sense of arrogance, that it's that attitude that would produce the destruction, not the nakedness. It's the attitude that's reflected in one's willingness to do that that would produce the destruction of the priest. Thus the shorts become a symbol of sin awareness and of humility. Now in no way is human sexuality in and of itself a sin, of course. And it's nothing in and of itself to be ashamed of. But that has been the result of the fall in the beginning, and that's been the, one of the primary means of expression of our shame of not coming up to the glory of God has been in the shame relative to the naked body. Now, if you understand much about pagan worship that went on in those days and would go on for centuries afterwards, in many, many forms of pagan worship, the priests were naked, male or female. In fact, ritual prostitution having to do with the worship of so many of the fertility gods was common. And so what God is demanding of, of his people and of his priests particularly would, was that they be the exact opposite of the pagans. That they not cozy up to the pagans and just be one step aside, but that they be clear on the opposite end of the spectrum. That the worship of God be in no way related to the worship of pagan deities. Because they, of course, are merely the inventions of the human mind or the reflections of demonic presences in this world. Nothing about the dress, the demeanor, the attitude, or the practice of the priest was to resemble anything of the pagan worship of that day. They were to be separated from worldly rituals, and they were to be wholly consecrated unto God. And their minds were to be on Him, and not to be distracted in any way by their physical body as they stood in the presence of God. Now the 29th chapter of the book of Exodus deals with the consecration ceremony of the priests. It's a long and involved ceremony wherein Aaron and his sons are ordained and anointed to the priesthood. And since there was no one else who could do it, Moses became the man who was authorized to carry out the ordination. It's kind of like, you know, I, I don't know how, how to make a comparison, but it's kind of like Napoleon when he, when he became emperor of the Napoleonic Empire. He crowned himself <laughs> because he felt nobody else was worthy. Well, <laughs> that was a bit of arrogance, but here God has ordained Moses to anoint his elder brother Aaron as high priest and the sons of Aaron as priests within the new, the new faith that was being established or the new expression of the faith that was being established from Mount Sinai. And so what you have in the 29th chapter of Exodus 
is kind of a blow-by-blow -blow account of the sacrifices that were made, of the sacrifice of a bull, of the sac true sacrifices of rams, and, and the burning of, of these as a sweet aroma unto the Lord, and of the taking of the blood of the ram and putting it on the right earlobe and the right thumb and the great toe of, of Aaron and of his sons as symbolic of their commitment to God and being set aside amongst all of Israel to be those who would minister unto the Lord, who would be the priest, who would be the mediators between God and his people. Because although we have Jesus Christ as our high priest and as our mediator, Christ had not yet died in the eyes of Israel, and therefore in, in his place there stood the Aaronic priesthood. This was a week-long consecration ceremony. We're told in uh, several verses in the latter part of the chapter that this was the, the, pro the um, sacrifices were to be repeated throughout this week as part of uh, dedication of Aaron and dedication of his sons and the anointing of the various instruments, the uh, furniture pieces that were part of the tabernacle. Now I think it's really important to understand that God ordained this particular consecration ceremony specifically from Mount Sinai. He said to Moses, this is what is to happen and this is how it is to happen. And these are the very pieces of the animal that are to be sacrificed unto me. And the carcass of the bull, the rest of it is to be burned outside the camp. But parts of the rams, for example, would be burned as an offering and other parts would be given to the priests themselves as their own due. And, and God made this clear. And, and God, of course, set the precedent. And this was how it was to be for the ordaining of the priests generation after generation after generation all the way down, of course, until Christ died and the sacrificial system was not needed any longer. Strict adherence to the ceremony that God had prescribed generally indicates seriousness of purpose and attitude of obedience. To do it exactly the way God wants it done. See, one of the biggest problems mankind has always had to deal with is a flippancy in dealing with sacred things. Think, well, you know, anything is good enough for God because He knows who I am and, and, you know, it just has to take me the way I am. Or the opposite attitude that some have, and that is that I'm never going to be good enough and therefore God can never look upon me. And, and neither of those positions is what God has ordained to be. God wants us to come boldly before the throne of grace, but with what? Humble hearts. <laughs> With, with cries of contrition, uh, admitting our sin and acknowledging that our cleansing can only come from God alone. A broken heart, God will not turn aside, the scripture says, over and over again. So the heart attitude here is really the key. The would-be priest, the attitude of his heart towards God was more important than the literal carrying out of every little aspect of the ceremony. But if the heart attitude is right, then the ceremony will be done right too. You know, they just kind of go hand in glove all the time, it seems. And, and you know, we can bring this to our own lives. If our heart attitude is right towards God, then our heart attitude is right towards one another. Our heart attitude is right towards 
the house of God, towards the institution called the church. If our heart attitude is right towards God, our heart attitude is right towards His Word. Our heart our attitude is right towards prayer. But sometimes we don't stop to realize that if our heart attitude is wrong towards His Word, wrong towards prayer, wrong towards the people of God, uh, we, we feel that we don't need the church. We can go off and do our own thing someplace and God will accept us just as well. Then what is really the root of that is our heart attitude towards God is wrong. Because if our heart is in alignment with God, then it's in alignment with His Word. And His Word tells us to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. It commands us to pray. It commands us to study the Word of God. And, and we don't just do it out of, well, God said i got to do it, so by golly, I'm going to do it, you know. It's not that kind of attitude at all. It's, it's we want to do it because our heart's right towards Him. And of course, how does our heart get right towards Him? Sometimes we have to take the by golly approach and discipline ourselves to the Word and discipline ourselves to prayer. And then through that, God will bring us to the place where it no longer is a burden or a chore or a discipline, but it is a joy and it's part of worship to Him. And so we can usually kind of take the dipstick approach here and, you know, if we, have, if we have a real bad attitude towards the church, if we have a bad attitude towards the people in the church, then probably we have a bad attitude towards God. And that needs to be dealt with first. I think that trying to straighten out our attitude towards people and our attitude towards His Word and, and so forth is like trying to put a Band-Aid on, on an infection. You've got to deal with the infection first. And, and get that healed, and then the other part will come along as it should. And so as the priests went into the consecration ceremony with an attitude that I am here now giving myself to God to serve as mediator for this people who, is, who needs God so desperately, and I go through this ceremony as a ceremony of true commitment of myself to Him, then this was a blessed time for those priests and was a blessed time for the nation of Israel. And you can believe that as time passed, that became less and less true. There were many who were ordained, ordained to the priesthood whose heart, were not right, whose heart was not right towards God. And God will destroy some of those. Even two of the sons of Aaron would be destroyed because they would deviate from the truth and walk in a way that was arrogant. And God would destroy them. Uh, and, of course, later on, the whole temple worship got so far off base that it was obvious that the priests were just doing it for the money or for the glory, the position, you know, being able to parade around and be considered a holy man. I think the most important part of the 29th chapter of Exodus, I mean, if we were, I, I don't really want to take the time to read through all of these because... A lot of it is, you know, talking about the various parts of the body that, of the animal that were cut up and, and sacrificed and so forth. It does talk in here about the um, atonement offerings, and it talks in uh, verses 26 and following about the wave offering and the heave offering. These were the offerings that were to be to, given to the priests and they would actually be used in kind of a waving motion before God as an offering to God who then returned it to the priest for his own consumption. And, and the heave offering, the word heave there actually is the word contribution. Uh, it's in fact used almost every time in Scripture. It's translated as contribution only here in this chapter is 
is as it translated as heave offering, and that's the offering that was specifically received uh, from God to be consumed by the priests themselves. Because we need to understand that part of the whole ceremonial system of the sacrifice of the animals to God was to also provide for the priests because the meat, part of the meat from the sacrifices was generally used to feed the priest and his family. And the grain and the oil and the wine, which was also brought in for sacrifice, part of that was given to the priest to help sustain them. It was part of the uh, contribution made to the, to the tabernacle system and then to the temple system. Chapter 29, verse 38, we read this. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine for libation with one lamb. This is very common for the sacrifice of an animal to be accompanied with a gift of the oil, the wine, and the grain, because these four things constituted the basic sustenance of the society. The meat of the lamb or the goat or the bull, the uh, grain that was grown and used, the olive oil that was part and parcel of their uh, lifestyle, of their, uh, of their diet, and then the grape wine also. Now, these quantities here, one-tenth of an ephah is approximately a little bit less than true dry quartz. And a, a quarter of a hen is just slightly under a quart liquid because um, a full hen was just under a gallon, as best as we can tell today. And so this would be mixed together to be offered with the lamb. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it the same grain offering as the morning and the same libation for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. And I will meet there with the sons of Israel and shall be consecrated and it shall be consecrated by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. This particular passage is describing the establishment of the daily sacrifices that were to begin. This, of course, is all describing what will happen. That's why there's kind of a future tense here in, in this. Because Moses is giving, is receiving the instruction, and it will be implemented soon. And when you start reading in the book of Leviticus, you, re you begin to read about how this was implemented and how these sacrifices occurred. And it was the daily sacrifice of these two lambs that was the foundation of God's blessing upon his people Israel. That was the, what we might call, to use the term crudely, the bare minimum. 
That had to be done every day of the year, every year of their existence, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. Just like getting up and going to bed, the sacrifice of those two lambs was to occur. And this reminds us of the fact that as we've read before in Hebrews 9, uh, in verse 22, where it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so the two lambs were sacrificed every day, one in the morning and one in the evening. Why? Was it to thin the herds? You know? Was it because God loved blood of lambs? No, none of that. It served as a reminder to Israel that every day they needed God's cleansing. Every day they needed God's cleansing. And as I have said before, God takes no delight in the death of these animals and he takes no delight in their blood. And he says so in Hebrews. He knew it was awful, but that's what it took for Israel to know how awful their sin was. You don't know how awful sin is until you come up against the awfulness of having to shed blood. Now, I don't know, maybe in most of us probably couldn't even do it. I mean, I'd have a hard time killing a, a lamb, not having been raised in a, in a ranch-type environment, or even a farm environment for that matter. Bugs I can handle, but I don't know about, <laughs> about a lamb. But for them, you see, it, w it was a very, very serious matter. And, and you remember when we talked about the Passover? When that lamb that was to be slain for the Passover, that that was not just, they didn't just walk out and randomly grab a lamb and, and kill it, you know. They brought it into their house. And they kept it in their house for several days. So it almost became a family member. Is God cruel? No. God knows that unless we understand how serious sin is, we will be flipping about it. And you and I know how that affects a society because we live in a society that's that way. I mean, sin is the norm. I, I mean, today nobody even talks about the fact that whoever they're living with, they're not married to. I mean, it's as if it's to be expected. And, and, and it's gotten, I mean, our society's gotten to the place where it's totally cold to what is sin. And so God had to provide a means by which Israel would be aware of the fact that sin is awful, and that it required the shedding of blood. And of course, most of us can, you know, we, we don't really understand or, or we don't stop to think, I guess, about how horrible was the death of Christ. I mean, I've, you've probably heard sermons as I have who, where the preacher tries to tell us about how terrible it is to die by means of crucifixion. But that isn't really as I'm sure we all understand, that's not really the horrible part of Christ's death. It was that the Son of God, eternally perfect, creator of the universe, would become a man and be so the object of hatred by the arrogant human race that he had created that they would happily nail him to a cross and gladly see him die. That was the pain. That was the great pain. And to bear the sin of the whole human race, that's what killed him. It wasn't the nails, it wasn't the blood that was dripping from his hands and his feet. 
It, it was the weight of the sin which he bore that killed him. And there isn't any way, you know, I've heard people try to explain, you know, how would it be if I were to become an ant and try to be the savior of the ants? You know, that, that comparison doesn't even hold water to being God of the universe and coming down amongst these fickle little blobs of protoplasm that, that God has made and to be laughed at by them. <laughs> you know, that should really hurt us as children of God. And we should begin to feel a measure of his pain as, as a result. And, and to understand that's how much he loved us and that's how awful sin is that required a sacrifice of such a magnitude. And of course, all these sacrifices of animals were pointing to this one great sacrifice. God said, I take no delight in the blood of bulls and goats. These sacrifices were symbolic. They were symbolic of the constant availability of God's forgiveness. And that's really, really important for you and for me as believers in God to remember that his forgiveness is ever available. No matter how far we feel we've missed the mark, no matter how far we feel like we've deviated away, no matter how far we feel our attitude has become bad, his forgiveness is always instantly available if we become humble and contrite and ask him to forgive us of our sin. And he will do it over and over and over again to the point that if you were to be, or if I were to put myself in the place of God long ago, I would have said, you've had it, buddy. Smash, you know. I've given you enough opportunities, but not God because he loves perfectly. He, he does not love to see anybody go to hell. It's not his desire. He's not willing that any should perish. But if that's what we insist on, he has given us the free will to go wherever we want to go. If it's to hell, he won't interfere. We have this sense that comes out of church history that God sends us to hell if we aren't good. It isn't God who sends us to hell. He does all he can to keep us from it, short of violating our free will. And so we send ourselves there by rejection of his son. It's our own choice. choice we choose to join up with the evil one. And God does send him to hell, ultimately. But that also was the product of his choice. The obedience to God's commands. If Israel will be obedient, and will provide the sacrifices morning and evening, morning and evening, 365 days a year, then what will God do in response? In verse 43, I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. Verse 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. There's nothing more wonderful than for God to say, I am your God and you are my people. What joy is it to be the people of God? To be called by his name, which is today, of course, becoming more and more a derisive term, is it not? To be called a Christian. I mean, it was used derisively in the beginning. 
You know, when they first were called Christians at Antioch, you can believe it wasn't because people were saying, oh, aren't they wonderful people? I think they should be called Christians because Christ was so wonderful. No, they were using it as a derisive term, Christians. And so it is becoming more and more in our society today. To be a Christian is not to be held in high esteem by our society. It's to be looked upon as a narrow-minded bigot. Now, bigot's a bad word in our society. But we're going to have to bear that, I think, more and more. And that's one thing a Christian is not. He's not a bigot. He's simply proclaiming the truth. And it is God who has said there is only one way unto my presence, and that's through Jesus Christ. It's God who said you can't come by any other means. So we're just simply proclaiming what God has said. We're proclaiming the truth. And therefore, we must bear the same shame poured upon us that Christ bore as his society attacked him for proclaiming the truth. God's going to dwell in the midst of Israel, there in the tabernacle. And as we'll see later on when we, when we actually read about the anointing of the tabernacle, when it was first dedicated, I mean, God's presence was not only there by faith, it was there because you could see it. <laughs> I mean, that tab tabernacle just glowed in the dark, you know, as God's presence was there. And God, by his presence, would guide them. And this is important for us to understand because sometimes we think of the Old Testament, we think of the Israelis in the Old Testament as being guided only in the generic way. And we don't stop to think that every single Israeli had to have personal faith in the God of Israel. He wasn't saved just because he was an Israelite. It'd be like our saying, I'm saved simply because I belong to a church. God would guide them nationally, but God would also guide them personally. And every single head of household was responsible for his own family. That's why he said, you know, put the words of God on the doorposts and put them on your arm and on your forehead. And, uh, of course, the Israelites eventually made that literal thing and started strapping stuff on their arms and on their head, you know, and all of this. Without knowing it means hide it in your mind and in your heart and teach it to your children that they will walk in the ways of God. And that's what Deuteronomy 6 so powerfully proclaims. Today, God dwells in the tabernacle, but you and I are those tabernacles. We are the tabernacle of God. And he indwells us personally, indwells us corporately. He is in you today. He is in me today, individually. But he's in this room too. Because we've promised, we've been told that in the Word of God. So he's here right now. He's hearing everything I'm saying. And I hope what I'm saying is what he's saying. But the most important thing is that you hear what he's saying. Whatever it is he's saying. From his Word. And, and the, the Holy Spirit is here. And he's guiding us by this book. Why, why did God tell the Israelites that they were to teach their children and bind the word on their hearts and all of that? Because they couldn't carry around a copy of the scripture with them because either they didn't even, even have copies of the scripture. And later on, when the scrolls were more massively produced, they were still kept in the synagogue, not carried around by everybody. I mean, you imagine carrying all these scrolls around here. Well, which book do you want to study today, you know? Just Isaiah is a huge old scroll. Uh, they have it over there in the, in the um, they call that museum, the Shrine of the Book. Yeah, Shrine of the Book, thanks. Shrine of the Book, they have an old copy of Isaiah over there. I mean, it just stretches forever around there, you know. And uh, you can imagine trying to carry it around that way. So, it, you know, we have, to be, we have to hide it in our hearts. And they had to hide it in their hearts. 
and we have that privilege today. Of course, we have, since we have both the Old and the New Testament, we'd really have a pack of squirrels to carry around if it were uh, in those, all out in those days. I'd like to read the uh, first few verses of chapter 30 of Exodus, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, its width a cubit. It shall be square. Its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around and its horns. You shall make a gold molding all around it. And you shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on its two side walls, on opposite sides. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. And you shall not offer any strange incense on this altar, or burnt offering, or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a libation on it. And Aaron shall make atonement for its, on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Whenever we read these descriptions, we think, well, it's kind of interesting about how wide it is and how tall it is and how it's supposed to have horns and supposed to be covered with gold and all this. But we have to understand that we're only looking at the, the very, you know, kind of a compressed description of it because Moses had a far greater description of it because that would be used to actually build the, the piece of furniture here. This is the last piece of furniture to be described that was to be inside the tabernacle itself. And this is the incense altar. And from the description we read there, we see it's very, very small. Uh, it's, it's only a cubit by a cubit by two cubits. So that means it's about a foot and a half square this way and only about three feet tall. So it's a very, very small item here that was placed in the tabernacle. And we're told that it was to be made like the bronze altar was and like the ark was. It was made of acacia wood and then it was totally overlain with gold. So the whole thing would just glisten with gold. And it was to be, a molding was to be made around it near the top, and these two rings were to be fastened on each side, opposite sides of it, so that the poles could be shoved through these two rings so that the priests could carry it, you know? And it wouldn't have been a terribly difficult thing to carry. Two priests could easily carry the altar of the incense with these acacia poles covered with gold that would be slid into the little poles and they were to be left there. You leave the poles there. That way they don't get lost for one thing. And uh, then every time they were to move it, they just, the two guys who knew it, they'd just come in here and grab that thing and off they'd go, you know, carrying the altar of incense. I mean, God made this whole thing to be partable. So it could be put down, put together and, and shoved onto carts or carried by the priests, whatever it was supposed to be done with each implement, and be moved in a relatively short period of time. But moving has never been a delightful experience for me. <laughs> and God knew it wouldn't be for them either. 
therefore he made it so it would be easy breakdown, easy setup, and with enough people to do it, I mean, there will be 22,000 Levites. Well, that's probably enough people, each one given his assignment, to be able to take care. I mean, you could have one Levite per pole that went around the outside of the tabernacle courtyard. I got pole number 63, you know. I go over there and I pull up the two stakes and I take care of that one post, you know, that held the curtain around the outside of the courtyard. I mean, it wouldn't be too difficult for any one person. So the moving it and the setting up was you know, what we might call today a piece of cake, relatively speaking. Now, this incense altar is a very, very important piece of furniture here. It was in the center of the tabernacle, directly in front of the second veil, which separated the holiest of holies from the holy place. And so here it was, sitting equidistant between the two sides of the tabernacle, right in the middle, uh, just a few feet out from the front of the second veil. And twice a day, twice a day, the high priest was to go in, and when he trimmed the wicks on the oil lamps of the menorah in the morning and in the evening, he was also to burn incense on that little incense altar. And it was to be done every single day, 365 days a year. Now, Scripture here gives us a formula for the incense that was to be burned in the altar. Now, I'm going to jump to the end of the chapter here to look at that for a minute. Verse 34. This is what was going to be burned on that altar. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stacti, onica, galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. And with it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you, and it shall be most holy to you. And the incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people." Now, what is interesting about this is frankincense, of course, is very, very common. And we see it mentioned many times in Scripture. I mean, it was a gift to Jesus, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One of the gifts to Jesus. But the other three spices that were used here in this incense, the stacti, the onica, and the galbanum, are mentioned only in this passage of Scripture. We know almost nothing about these three. Those who have studied this have come up with the belief that uh, stacti and galbanum were probably rosins from an aromatic plant of some sort that was common in, probably not common, but was relatively rare in those days, and that onica was apparently extracted from a mollusk, and they get that mainly from the derivation of the word onica. But whatever they were, these four substances, we're told here, were to be blended in equal part with some salt added to it. Now, they were warned not to make any of this combination for your own personal use. It is to be used solely for the incense burned on this altar. Why? 
Was it some kind of a magical formula? And if you used it, whoa, you suddenly would have supernatural power? Absolutely not. The prohibition was for one reason only, and that was that God would not be commonized. That God would not be taken from the awesome to the common. That we don't just take any old thing, it's good enough for God kind of approach, which even we deal with sometimes, I think, today. God is to be exalted. And everything having to do with God is to be held in high esteem. And everything having to do with his worship is holy and is consecrated unto God himself. There are many people today who call themselves Christians who have no problem profaning and trivializing the things of God. They have no problem with, uh, a, with turning the church into a gambling den or a dance hall you know, if they need to for one reason or another, or to glibly sing or talk about a relationship of God, with God with some kind of, in some kind of a flippant manner. You know, to pull God down to just a buddy, 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 buddy type of approach and, and not consider him and not even think of him as the almighty, holy, awesome creator of the universe upon whom we have no claim apart from his willingness to come down and choose us. There is no way we're worthy of him and no way we can say, I have God because he looked down at me and said, I got to have him because he is so good and so valuable to me. Now, how serious was this? Pretty serious because the penalty for making this holy incense for private use was to be cut off from Israel. And we might say, what does that mean? It means excommunication. And excommunication in those days was bad news because to be excommunicated from Israel was to be kicked out of God's kingdom, out of the possibility of being a part of God's kingdom. Obviously, somebody who would do that didn't really trust or believe in God in the first place, and he would just shut the door, bam, and he would be cut off from God. Scripture tells us that the fear of God is the very beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the very beginning of knowledge. Thus, the people of God were to be in awe of him and with everything connected with his worship. This was a holy incense. This is a holy anointing oil. This is a holy building. These are holy implements used in the worship of God. You know, in some ways, I suppose it's difficult for us to try to relate all of that to where we are today because, you know, it's pretty hard for us to say this is a holy building, you know, in, in and of itself. But it serves as a holy building when God's holy people are here doing God's holy business. By being here with God in our presence, we have kind of consecrated this building. I'm not saying that therefore this building could never be used for any other use, but I sure think it ought not to be used for profane things. Because I think with profane things comes profane spirits. And I think one of the things that we don't understand today in our world many don't anyway, is that there is a very real spiritual realm and that we wrestle not with flesh and blood and, but with principalities and powers. And I think as profane things uh, enter into a, a place where holy things should be taking place, that profane spirits come. And I think those profane spirits can, can make a place uh, a very, very uh, demonically controlled thing. And that's why I think sometimes it's, it's good to actually cleanse a building if a profane use has preceded its use. 
uh, the use for what you want to use it and, and you know, just take God's word in there and, and proclaim that this is now God's and any spirits that might be around are ordered off the premises in the name of God. Interesting along that line that, that occasionally churches, will, when they move from one building to another, will have what they call lifting the dedication. I, that, that's actually the name of the service where they lift the dedication before they move. I just thought of it. You know, yeah, kind of what yeah. I think it's a good practice if they're sincere and know what they're yeah. doing. Right. So, I, you know, I, I think that in those senses, we, we have to at least be aware of the possibility of, of you know, something being profane that you would want to use for other, other purposes. But in the case of the Israelite tabernacle and these implements, I mean it was a much more concentrated dedication of that building and there was to be no other attachment to it whatsoever because anyone who did would be at minimum cut off from Israel, at maximum die on the spot. I mean, God pretty well protected his own place. But there would be a day when what? Ichabod. You know, the spirit of, of the Lord would be gone and not only would the tabernacle be desecrated at one point in time, but the temple of God would be torn down flat twice because it no longer was a holy building. It had been dedicated to profane <coughs> uses and therefore God's presence was removed. Well, I think the application to us personally is that, um, you know, we, we can take the, this temple, this tabernacle, in which the Holy Spirit dwells, and we can do profane things with it. And I think as we do so, we open a beachhead to the evil one to get a foothold in our lives and to cause us to great, great pain and suffering. And I think that what we have to do is rededicate this tabernacle and to make it off limits to the profane things of life uh, so that the enemy cannot have a foothold and so that the power of God is reflected in our lives every day. But that requires us to, in effect, <coughs> slay the lamb twice a day. That is, to constantly rededicate our lives to him on a daily basis and recognize that every day we need cleansing because we have failed. Every day we have failed. We need God's new cleansing. And it's there all the time because his mercies are new every morning and they never run out. It's not like God has, you know, in the, in the Catholicism, there's this treasury of merit up here and you draw upon this treasury of merit and that treasury of merit is relatively uh, finite. In God's mercy, there is no finiteness. The infinite God is infinite mercy and you'll never wear out God's mercy. Um, he'd much rather have us continually come to him than to just say, hey, it's, I can't, you know, he, I can't believe that he'd actually forgive me again because that's exactly what he wants to do. And that is the picture of this whole tabernacle system. Those Israelites to know that God's mercy is new every day and they needed forgiveness of sin to renew their walk with him each and every day. It's interesting that 1 John 1, 9 highlights that yeah. present continuing action. If we keep on confessing our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. That's where knowledge of the Greek helps, doesn't it? Piggybacking <laughs> what you were yes. saying. Yes, yeah. yes, that is. That's wonderful when we, when we think about that.